It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast, coming in 3, 2, 1. This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. This show brought to you by Constellation Media. Hi everybody out there, this is Alan Fasfold speaking and you are listening to episode 7 of the second season of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Today you'll be listening to an interview I recorded with Dr. Jarita Holbrook of the University of the Western Cape. But before we get to that... I would just like to remind you all that one of the reasons I have managed to stick to a consistent release schedule this season is that I left my day job and I'm now doing this podcast and other science communication work full time. That means that your support through Patreon and other channels no longer goes to a slush fund for new microphones, but is part of my family's budget. If this stirs feelings of guilt or pity on your heart, then all you need to do to make yourself feel better is visit our website at www.urban-astronomer.com and click the Patreon link and pledge a small monthly donation. On the other hand, if you feel nothing at all, well, it's worth a shot. Still true, though. Anyway, if I haven't chased you away with my transparent manipulations, here is the star of today's show, Dr. Dorita Holbrook. So I've been studying the uh, square kilometer array and the town of Carnarvon and the astronomy community mm-hmm. to see if there's a similar pattern to what happens at other observatories around the world, which is the observatory itself becomes a metropole. It is the center of a lot of high tech and, you know, state of the art And, of course, it it has this intellectual capital as well. The people who work there are highly skilled. Um, Mm -hmm. But these observatories are always placed in high, dry, and dark locations, which are very rural. And Mm -hmm. so there's always this disconnect between the people who live in the region and the observatory itself. And usually that degrades even more over time. There's resentment and, you know, that there's so much money and um, things flowing into the observatory that's not really helping the community or the region. And then in, in terms of the observatory itself, it does not benefit from having population growth in the area. And so the observatory doesn't want to attract more people to the region. Um, So, of course, the best solution is to educate the people in the region that already live there so that they can work at the observatory and you don't have to import your your knowledge base. Right. Uh And so uh, but for some reason, (laughs) for some reason, uh, observatories scientists, et cetera, have not taken that tact. Um, They have not seen the local population as being capable or worth educating to the extent that they can work at the observatories. Um, And I'm speaking of like observatories in the U.S., you know, um, Uh Chile, et cetera. I think Chile is a kind of an exception because 
their uh, observatory is in the middle of nowhere. But then, you know, you find that when you place things in the middle of nowhere, in fact, people do live there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so why do you think that is? I mean, is, is that just a snobbery thing or an elitism or is there something more, uh, more nuanced? Well, I think that whenever you're, you're working with local populations, indigenous populations, that, um, and you're, and you're, so you're, you're have this, this, uh, yes, there's an, there's an intellectual disconnect, but there's also a lack of creativity on the part of the people who should be educating the local people. Right. 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 Okay. So there's a lack of creativity and I find just being a professor of astronomy and I've been a professor of other things too. I've been a professor in, um, in applied anthropology as well. And I've been a visiting professor in women and gender studies, mm-hmm. but I want to I want to just sort of bad mouth the astronomers for a minute and the physicists for a minute, <laughs> and so I'm going to bad mouth them a minute, and then I'll I'll come back with some compliments. So, so I start by saying that I find that when it comes to educating students, that they're very very lazy. Like they really don't want to take the time to teach the students the things that they want, that they need to know. They just want to find the very, very brightest students so that they can make them brighter. You know, <laughs> they want yeah, their students yeah. intellectually ready-made, just like, oh, I don't have to actually work. I just have to identify those people who are already good at this. Right. Mm-hmm. And so because they're intellectually lazy, it would they even consider taking the time to reach out to local regional populations who they consider haven't produced a scientist yet, et cetera, whatever their biases. Now, that said, now I have to come back to the compliments, which is, you know, I'm a professor at the University of Western Cape, and I mm-hmm. find that the attitude of the physicists there is different, that they are interested. They will take the time to teach the students what they know. They know that students don't come in ready-made, that you actually have to teach them and bring them to a level in which they can become physicists, astrophysicists, you know, chemical physicists, whatever. So they don't have that uh, teaching bias walking in the door. Everyone there has the potential to become a scientist. And it's you, it's your job as a professor to teach them so that they can do this, so that they can achieve their dreams if their dream is to be a scientist. So there, I bad mouth and I complimented. <laughs> so there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> can we take a step back for a second? Sure. Because I want to ask you a very basic question because and it's disguising the fact that I don't actually know how to pronounce your name. So can you tell us what is your name and a little bit about yourself? Okay. My name is... <laughs> Jerita Holbrook. Okay, Jerita Holbrook. Oh. Yes. And that is my birth name. I did not, right. when I got married, I did not change my name. And um, I come from an African American family. We are descended from slaves. So we do not have a direct connection to Africa. We've been in the United States for hundreds of years. Uh, um, the Holbrook family, my family, came from a plantation in North Carolina and migrated across the United States. And my um, 
the generation before me, of course, was the generation of the Vietnam War. And so all of my uncles were in the military and my family traveled. My father was in the military, too, in the Air Force. And so my family traveled, you know, all over the world. I have, you know, my my uncles traveled to Germany. My father traveled to um, Thailand. Uh, they settled in Tokyo for a minute. I was born in Hawaii when they were there. And then they moved to California and then other various other military bases in the United States. Um, I have cousins that were born in North Africa, cousins that were born in Germany. You know, so they were all in the military. Um, so we're sort of this, um, this you know, world traveling, but in the context of work. Uh, families. Yes. So that's that's my roots. So tell me, with all that traveling, then um, when did the, where did the astronomy come from? Was it just seeing the different skies as you traveled, or was it? Well, I was pretty much raised in California, and mm -hmm. you know, there's so many ways to tell about how you get involved with something. And I, lately, I'm just like, you know, there's not anything that's particularly unusual about my story. I think mm -hmm. that when you are a kid, you go through a bunch of interests. Um, I always say people start with dinosaurs, right? <laughs> Geology, yeah. rocks. Volcanoes, yeah, that's me. <laughs> exactly. And then, but yeah. outer space and the planets is, is in that list, right, mm. of, of things that you become enchanted with. As you're going through elementary school, if you go to an elementary school where they take their, you know, exposure to science seriously, of course, everyone loves chemistry because, you know, mm. you, you put things together, they change colors, you know, mm. blah, blah, blah. Blow Get through lab coats. Yeah. And then electricity. <laughs> so, and I think that the, the major difference between um, my story and, and everyone else's story is that since I was living in Los Angeles and I was going to science magnet schools in Los Angeles, we were exposed to the jobs that you can get as well. And so I actually learned that you could actually have a job as an astronomer. So I'm like, okay, that's what I'll try. So for a while I wasn't settled. I was like, Oh, you know, I kind of like geology, but I also like astronomy. I also like oceanography. So I took a class in, in each one of those. And um, and basically all of them required physics. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so that's how I ended up majoring in physics, right? Right. Yes. But all the research, once I was an undergraduate, all the research that I did was in astronomy. I think you covered this already earlier, but what are your research interests in, a, let's say, in astronomy? Right. I mean, is it purely the cultural side? Is it the yes. where it's crossing so, over so with your anthropology? Things, or? So, okay. So my expertise as a uh, an astrophysicist was mm. on star formation regions and the chemical and atomic makeup of molecular clouds where these stars are formed and the dust and ice content of them and how all of this, basically this, this cloudy stew of, of chemicals uh, produces baby stars and how many baby stars they, they, um, they produce. So that's what my PhD work was on. And um, so I kind of 
check in every now and then to see how that's going. Because it's been 20 years since I've actually done any active research in it. But I can, I still have discussions about it every now and then. Um, and my work is online, so people know what I've done. So they can discuss like, oh, you know, 20 years ago, you said this and this, if they want to, right? And then, um, but mostly I've been, for the last 20 years, I've been doing um, various cultural aspects of astronomy. That intersection between people in the sky and how that plays out in ways other than just straight astrophysics. Mm-hmm. Because uh, when I first heard about this, uh, or f- heard about you, I assumed this was going to be looking at indigenous astronomy, um, different sky traditions beyond just the you know the Greek constellation names and and, and what have you. Yes, that's um, what I do. But, <laughs> I do that too. But, I mean, but it sounds like there's a lot more to it then. I I have to say that that is the work that I enjoy the most, mm-hmm. and that I have the hardest time getting funding to do. Right. right. So. Um, so since I've been to South Africa, uh, I've only done one project that was on indigenous astronomy, and that was uh, going up and working with um, the Square Kilometer Array again, right? Uh-huh. And they wanted to collect stories about the sky from local storytellers um, yes. who were descended from the sound. I have to say it right. It just sounds like that, like a click. People, (laughs) Uh Um, their stories. And so so that's the only project that I've actually gone out and collected new data on. Uh, Uh The rest of the time, it's it's much more easier to get funding to study basically the astrophysicists and what they're up to. I don't want to say how they're how they're messing things up, but well, what they're up to. I can, I can see why they'd be more interested in hearing about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, more you know, for the South African government, of course, yeah. they're interested because they're investing so much in astronomy, and astronomy is just like glacially. I guess it's on astronomical time scales, diversifying, uh-huh. right? So they're barely making a dent with increasing the number of women. And, um, and of course, in, in, in getting the full representation of the South African population into astronomy, right? Uh-huh. Where they just don't have all the representations of all the ethnic groups. Yeah. So um, what did I want to say about that? Oh, so what, what happens is this is a worldwide issue in astronomy and astrophysics where the lower you look down i.e the younger population then Mm -hmm. you'll have more representation but the higher you look the more senior people you realize that everyone has left right (laughs) and so as you go through the ranks you know you just it goes back to being white and male the higher, the higher you go, it's just white males, white males, white males. And um, so something needs to be done to retain the diversity. You, you know, we mm. work really, really hard. And um, even if we have a lot of women getting PhDs, they're not staying in the field. What are we doing to drive them out of the field? I mean, I know we're just 
we are just jerks. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we're jerks. We're jerks. We're just we're badly behaved. We're backstabbing. Um, mm -hmm. We're demanding. We're divas. You yeah. know, uh, we're used to being the smartest person in the room. Damn it. Right. Okay, that, just, that does sound familiar. Yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, so we have a lot of cultural, like as astrophysicists, culturally, we're difficult people. And on top of that, if you're white and male, and I'll put on my white and male jacket right now. So mm -hmm. me as a white male, I have been trained that, you know, there I am the star of the show and everyone else is supposed to be helping me achieve greater heights. So right. who are those people who are achieving, helping me achieve greater heights? They're usually women, right? So I'm mm -hmm. used to women doing things for me to achieve my heights and not recognizing them as being players, right? Those are just people who are to help me look better. And so this culturally has to shift, right? You have to actually look at your female students as your future colleagues, not as, oh, it's good to have a woman at the group group because she takes records very well. Oh, it's good to have a woman in group because she'll go shopping for the group to get food. And she'll serve, you know what I'm saying? So they, yeah, they, yeah. they actually, in groups, they make women do gendered tasks. And the, mm -hmm. and the women, of course, are trained to do these gendered tasks. Like, we're trained. I'll take off my white male coat and put on my female coat. I don't wear that female coat very well, by the way. But putting on the female coat, um, you know, we're supposed to keep things neat and tidy and we're supposed to be serving the tea and we have to make sure everyone is comfortable. We just do a lot of labor that's completely unacknowledged. And I found that this is especially true in South Africa. But I was giving a lecture in Washington, D.C. a few months ago. And as part of this, we they were going to have tea. And the, actually, the male professor was making tea, and he started to struggle with the teapot. Uh -huh. And one of the female graduate students jumped up and I said, sit, I screamed, sit down, <laughs> <laughs> sit down. She was like, I had shot her. And I'm like, it does not pay in physics to do gender tasks. Sit down. And so then, of course, the male graduate student said, I am so sorry. And he got up and he went and he helped the male professor. You know, I was I was about to ask, how do, how do you fix this? It sounds like you've sounds like you've got a plan. <laughs> sounds like yeah. I'm horrible. I don't, I'm pretty, <laughs> you know, I was nice and gentle and shy when I was younger. Uh -huh. Astrophysics has made me like this. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yes. And I just feel like people are like, oh, my God, you're so, like, confident and obnoxious and you're brave. I'm like, okay, close your eyes and think mm -hmm. of me as a white male. And then let me know if I've done anything out of the ordinary because I've done everything con consistent with my career stage. I am a senior scientist. This is the way senior scientists behave. Right? Right. <laughs> so that's uh, probably more than you wanted to hear, but no, no. Well, I mean, it's very informative because I mean, I hear about this a lot, and you know, as somebody who actually never graduated myself, I 
I see similar things, but it's been a more commercial space, you know. Um, uh, so the the academic side is, yeah. Well, it's it's, it's I'm rambling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I must have given you a lot to think about. <laughs> the thing yeah. is, none of this is news. You know, uh, no, you hear this all the time. Stuff. Yeah, but the people who are always shocked are the women themselves. It's like, okay, you know that those ten times you put out the tea. Did anybody thank you for putting out the tea? No. Okay. Mm. Stop doing mm. it. So it's it's like if you're waiting to get acknowledged for doing gender tasks, it's never ever going to happen unless you yeah. train the train the men to actually say thank you and that I will do it next time. That's what the guy should say, right? Mm -hmm. But instead, right. they just accept it as the norm. I'll tell you a secret. I don't want to make the tea, right? That's what it comes down <laughs> to, isn't it? <laughs> If, it yeah, wasn't, if you don't want to make the tea, why make somebody else make the tea? Take your turn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it was a fun job, then, of course, it would have been taken over by now. Yes. Yeah, that's that's my attempt at acknowledging. But It's just yeah. so much easier just to be a man and just let everyone do things for you. Oh. I'm oh, like, it's God. a great life being a yeah. man. It's a great life. Uh, and it's, it's, it's easy to squash the guilt down, you know, just, well, you know. <laughs> Oh well, they they yeah. they're getting a sense of satisfaction from doing that, from making the tea for me, <laughs> right? <sighs> well, I've got enough self-respect not to come up with something that lame. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you wanted to know? I know I'm 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 kind mm. of rambling too, but I came to South Africa for for work. You know, South Africa has chosen very strategically which sciences they're going to support, and those sciences take advantage of the advantages that South Africa has in the sciences. So you get paleontology, uh, you get oceanography because it's between two oceans, you get Arctic studies because it's close to the Arctic, and you get astrophysics mm -hmm. because it's got dark skies. Mm -hmm. So they've invested a lot in astronomy. I think you've heard this before, but, you know, for the record. And so, yeah. and they've attracted a lot of foreign scientists to improve the astrophysics in the country and so mm. um i think that those those astronomers and astrophysicists who they bring they have to strategically interview them because like i said if they're if they're um, working in that mindset of i'm just here to identify the best students as opposed to i'm here to teach students and actually do work teaching students uh, right, then right. this this is never going to work. So you have to get these foreign scientists who have the right work ethic in terms of educating students in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Yes. I wonder if that is why the people I've spoken to have uniformly been just such friendly and open people. You, know, you hear so much about the competitiveness and um, in academia, and I'm just not seeing it. Is it is, is this part of the selection effect? Do you think? I think that also um, um, South Africa is a different culture in which to work, right? And I think that uh, I think that you do sometimes see the competitiveness, but uh, that being but South African culture, it's not as strong as in other parts of the world. So it's actually mm. for me, I found that it was a a very pleasant place to work. Um, I like being at University of Western Cape. 
I feel like, you know, University of Western Cape has a, a long anti-apartheid history and, uh-huh. uh, and it was diverse, right? It was not, it was a lot of the white professors went to jail <laughs> as anti-apartheid protesters. And yeah. so that ethos is, is still there, you know, that we're here, we're here to change South Africa for the better and get uh-huh. all of its citizens participating in all aspects of South African life. So I would say that it, it, it's the selection. Well, the whole thing is if you come to South Africa and you're competitive, nobody else is mm. going to compete. right? So, uh-huh. so you're basically banging your head against the wall because everyone is just happy doing their own thing. They're in there. They're, you know, doing their science. They're mentoring their students, uh, you know, so and they have enough resources as well. Uh-huh. You know, in astronomy, there's and in physics, there's there seems to be enough resources such that people don't have to really compete for resources. Right. And that, I think, takes some of the edge off of that competitive environment. Like, Mm. my winning doesn't mean you losing. My winning means our whole department wins. Yeah. So we have digressed. I'm sure there were different astronomy and indigenous astronomy questions you wanted to ask me. (laughs) Instead, we're doing a human... (laughs) You know, all of this, you know, scientists are humans. They're not absolved mm-hmm. from all of the, these cultural and social issues. Yes. And so when I'm studying astrophysicists and their behavior, you know, this is the stuff that comes up, you know, leadership and collaborations. And, mm. you know, there's beautiful parts of studying astrophysicists, such as, you know, some of the beautiful things that they're studying, their ideas. Um you know, th- those are the real beautiful things. But a lot of it is just like normal human stuff. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> normal human stuff, because we are still humans. Yeah. I, w- I was asking about uh, local indigenous astronomy a while ago, and we sort of glossed over that. But it must have been about five, ten years ago, somebody I was speaking to at, um, from the Astronomical Society of South Africa, he had been trying to collect these stories as well. And he ended up sending me the... the what he had managed to, to to gather together these these this mess of text files and PDFs and what have you, and I read all through the, all these stories and they're all very interesting and you know just great um, African mythology and the like. And then I get to the end and there's this little note, somebody questioning all the stories because the way they'd been gathered was to send people out with a little bit of money, uh, go into remote villages and say, what are the stories that your your grandparents used to tell you. And so the question now is, are these actually the stories that they were told? Or did some guy with money come in and say, please tell me a story? And said, well, I'd better tell him a story if I want the money. So if the person didn't have stories or if he didn't have new stories. And I know some of the stories are, are correct because, um, again, second, third hand, people bringing these stories home and having colleagues say, oh, yes, I remember that one from when I was little. And others no one has heard. Yes. So, so, so like, I mean, it's, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, any how, other. how do you deal with stuff like this? How, how do you get this information and, and, and trust it? So you're getting the information is, is super, super hard, first of all. And then mm. trusting is, I mean, that has a whole can of worms behind it, of course. And, but you know that there's a rule in, in journalism, which is, you know, always get three sources, right? 
You have to right. get it um, corrobor- corroborated by three three different sources, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so, this is what you you do, you know. And and then the other thing is, you we're at this point in time, you're normally not the first person to get these stories, right? So you're basically just getting stories and comparing it to the stories that somebody else got 50 years ago and somebody else got 100 years ago and somebody else got Mm -hmm. 200 years ago. And so, and what becomes very interesting in that case is of course the modifications of the stories because stories are tweaked to, to match the circle, the local, the current circumstances. So Mm -hmm. you want to see how those sort of changes happen with the story, what's being modified, what's being kept and what's being lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so you just, you know, you get used to doing this, you know, like I get, just like if you're doing astronomy and you're looking at another p- picture or another spectrum of a star, you're like, Oh, it's an A type. Oh, it's a C type. Oh, it's a B. You know, you've seen them <laughs> and it's like, okay, it's this, it's this, right. And so, yeah. um, I think that as a cultural astronomer, we have a very interesting position as a cultural astronomer uh, going mm-hmm. out into indigenous communities because there's some things that we've heard in several different contexts, not just the community that we're sitting in, but like, okay, this is the type of story they tell in the Pacific as well, and this is the type of story in Native America, da 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 da. And we know that there's a basis for these these stories that is some of these bases are consistent uh and the and what hinges is of course on the night sky so what's visible what's bright what's visible what are they likely to have stories about right Mm -hmm. and then you find that okay you know those are bright visible from where they are then that makes sense that they would have stories and then um then there's the utilitarian aspect of it if they have a lot of uh constellations and asterisms that are not bright, like they're actually the fainter ones, fainter stars, then that's usually because they're using them for something. Like they have mm. to know what these stars too, because they're using them for something. And that could right. be uh, navigation, calendars. Um, yeah. That kind of, that kind of use. Right. Um, so it's in, and you know, so as cultural astronomers, we kind of, have an idea how humans use and think about and play with the sky and bring the sky down to earth, right? And, okay. and why they decide to bring the sky down to earth. So one of the common reasons that they bring it down, of course, is to establish authority. But another reason, of course, is calendars. Like, you know, <laughs> agricultural calendars. Everyone has to make a calendar in order to do mm. agriculture, right? And do migration. And no, what do you mean by uh, authority? Uh, how does that work? I'm not sure I understand that. So uh, uh, I just gave a TED talk on religion and cultural astronomy. Oh, I see. Okay. And and in that TED talk, I explain how uh, certain people, groups, whatever, want to establish political and social authority. They want to be kings and queens and divas. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so you could use it for for religion or for horoscopes or something like that. Not necessarily for horoscopes, but to establish themselves as being the, the rightful king, ruler, mm. whatever. So okay. they, there's many moves that they do to do that. One is that they say that 
they came from the sky, right? Their ancestors uh -huh. came from the sky. The uh -huh. other is that they control the sky, right? They control right. the weather, the the uh, seasonal changes, eclipses. Uh, you know, they control yes. that. That's that's another thing that they can say. Um, um, and so normally it's those two moves. And the, uh, a third move is that they're born when something celestial is happening, right? So whether it's meteor shower, comets, uh, eclipse, you know, that because they were born during that time gives them that authority, right? That authority right, right. To, to rule over you. So, um, and this, of course, you know, it, it's not particular to Africa. It's Europe, you know, it's Middle East. Uh. You know, that they, they make these moves to... Uh, well, to Book of Matthew, right? I mean... I was going to say the the nativity story in 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 Matthew in the Bible, you know the 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 wise men following the star to find Jesus. Right, right. That's like a celestial event. Yes. So my point being that you know we as cultural astronomers, because we've studied our field, we know the kind of moves that humans have made in the past and how they could possibly be making now in mm. regards to these social processes, but related to the sky. Okay. I hope that's clear. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think so. Yes, it's, it's basically it's it's a if I can try and summarize now. These are common behaviors uh, among human cultures around the world, and you start to recognize them as you move around and hear the same sorts of stories. Yes, exactly. That's good. Got, you it. got it. Okay. We <laughs> get an A plus today. <laughs> you know, I think we I think we've covered everything. Um, are there any any projects uh, that, that you'd like to bring people's attention to, or to to mention or promote? No, I think I've covered everything right now. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we do need more subscribers on YouTube for our our YouTube series, uh, Science Tourist. You can find it just if you put All in right. the search "Science Tourist," then we uh, come up. I think we're the number one search term for that. So we great. can use uh, subscribers for that. Um, All right. I'll, I feel like I'll most of the stuff that I'm doing now is media related as opposed mm. to uh, doing research, but I've done enough research. I have so much data <laughs> that I'm sitting on <laughs> that, um, that I could not, I could not do another interview because I do interview based inquiry. Okay. I could not do another interview and have enough to take me through to my retirement uh, because <laughs> I have, interviewed hundreds and hundreds of astrophysicists this is this is not the fun stuff not the indigenous knowledge stuff but the astrophysicist mm. and the culture of astrophysics and how it's um inclusive to some and, and exclusive to others so yeah. um so that has to be analyzed and um so yes that it keeps me busy as well i mm. i'm also um Bloomsbury's series has a cultural history of series, cultural history of. And so I'm one of the editors of a volume on the cultural history of the universe. And okay. so that involves six chapters and I have to write two chapters uh, in other people's volumes. But I'm in charge of the volume that's from 1920 to the present. And I'm, I don't know if you've ever had to deal with six authors <laughs> getting the uh, I have not, no. 
and and that's that's pretty time consuming is is just and and I'm having to edit as well mm-hmm. as my graduate student is writing her her PhD thesis right now so when I'm not editing the science tourist series I am editing mm-hmm. my my students uh thesis or I'm editing these chapters that are coming in for this cultural history of the universe that's forthcoming it's it's actually going to be out in about 2 years so those okay. are the things that take up my time these days and raising my teenagers. I have teenage daughters. So, oh, how many? Just two. Two. Well, two's enough, eh? Yeah, one's <laughs> in college, so I consider that a success. Yeah. <laughs> but I still have Out of the house. Life. Job done. <laughs> yes, out of the house. But she's back for the summer. You made an adult and therefore the job is done. Yes. Successfully, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> success. I still got a few years to go, but... <laughs> Anyway, um, so if if people would like to get hold of you and ask you ask you more about your work, uh, how can they find you? I try not to be found. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really busy, but I'm on. I'm actually on Instagram and Twitter. Those are the two uh-huh. things that I usually post on, and that people can interface with me. There's my my page. My public page is Dr. Jarita Holbrook, so uh-huh. they can ask me questions on that page. And if I remember to get on Facebook, then I'll answer. I do get notifications every now and then. But a lot of the things mm. I get from Facebook is garbage, so I just ignore it. But yeah. once once a week, I do get on Facebook and see if anyone has asked me any questions. or you know, mm. Scroll through notifications, my whole is red. I, that's what I do as well. <laughs> yeah. But most of the posting that I do regularly is on Instagram and Twitter, and they just feed into my Facebook page. Okay. Yeah, so that's the way to get in touch with me. That was Dr. Jerita Holbrook from the University of the Western Cape, talking about the stuff that underpins our favorite science. This last weekend, I presented a talk at Scopex on orbital mechanics using Kerbal Space Program to demonstrate some of the more unintuitive aspects of maneuvering through space. It went pretty well, considering that I started running over time and had to cut myself short, but I was really excited to meet people who do actually listen to the show in person. One of them, Heiste Krobler, is a researcher at the Hartebeershoek Radio Astronomical Observatory. The radio telescope from this observatory is less than a half hour's drive from where I live, and I've always wanted to pay them a visit and record an interview for this show. Somehow, that never happened, but... Hopefully, Haystack will agree to chat to us in Season 3 and tell us a little about the history of the observatory and what sort of work he does there. Now, I've got something else I'd like to let you know about. It's a bit of an experiment. I'm trying out a new app which is supposed to create a community around podcasts. It's called Flick and is driven through an app on your phone or tablet. I've created a group especially for the Urban Astronomer podcast, and if you would like to try it out, then you can visit the show notes page at urban-astronomer.com and click the link. Now, they make it sound a bit like they're trying to create yet another social media platform, but honestly, it looks and feels a lot more like an old-school web forum. Each group has its own community of members, and topics of discussion can be created within that group where members can chat and compare notes. They've promised all sorts of interesting functionality that will appear in future versions of the app, and if I'm honest, I think it's got a lot of potential. But, like any other online community, it can only work if people actually join in and participate. 
Now, I'm there most days, so if you have questions and would like to chat in a format that's a little more intimate than Twitter or more immediate than email, why not give it a try? There's no cost, no obligation, just, it's just an app, which you can find in both the Android and the Apple stores. Anyway, that's all we have time for today. If you enjoy the show, why not send me a message on the Flick Group or by emailing me at podcast at urban-astronomer.com. You can tell me whether you prefer the science explainy bits or the interviews, or let me know if there's anything that you would like to see me add in the next season. If you'd really like to help, you could also make donations on Patreon through the links on the urban-astronomer.com website, or just leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you used to find the show. And while you're at it, if you've got any friends or colleagues who might also like the Urban Astronomer podcast, why not let them know that we exist and show them how to find us? You can tell them that the next episode drops on the 8th of October 2019 and will be another of our popular science explainy bits. Until then, though, my name is Alan Fasfeld. You've been listening to the Urban Astronomer podcast, and I hope you have clear skies. Goodbye. Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the three. 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.